The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. The scripture reading for this morning is taken from Joshua 2, 1 through 19. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, The men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land... You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. You may be seated.
Thanks, Stephanie and Casey. Okay, there's three things that I want to do really quick before uh, we dive into the text. Um, in the first service, I forgot what the third one was, and so uh, we'll see how it goes this time. Um, the first thing that I want to say before we dive into the text is that if you're new to the Bible, there are stories here that are hard to wrestle with. Those of us who have been around the Bible for a long time, it doesn't mean we're better at them. It just means we're more used to them. And so you can hear a text about um, the fact that God is going to wipe out this town of Jericho, and it can be startling, this violent depiction of Israel, uh, the Israelites, God's people, taking over the promised land and sort of the surrounding context, which is so violent. And I want to tell you that we can't deal with all of that right in this moment when we're going to talk about Rahab, but I do want to tell you that it's a particular moment in redemptive history, and it's punctuated, it's finished. Meaning, as God tells the story of the history uh, and the kingdoms of the world in the Bible, there's this season in which violence is used, and it is a punctuated season, and it is uh, in reference to basically keeping the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, not to have what he says melded with what all of the other idolaters in history say. And so he is trying to keep this line so that the people will really know God, so that the rest of the world can be saved. All that to say, yes, it's startling to see violence uh, sort of in the greater context here, but it's a particular time in redemptive history, and that time is punctuated. It's over. Second thing, if you're new to the Bible, you might think that um, uh, the Bible has a history of kind of recounting the assault and the mistreatment of women. And it's a good concern that you have, but I just want us, as we look at this, to recognize that the Bible can recount something to you, report something to you, without recommending it to you. You know what I mean? Like Solomon has 700 wives. I personally don't think that's a great idea, but we can know that that happened, but without the Bible saying, this is what you should do too. And so while there are hard stories of abuse and assault with women, the Bible is recounting it to you. It's not recommending it to you. God the Father, Son, and Spirit have a very high view of women. And you see that in Scripture over and over again, and even particularly this morning. And so I want you ladies to hear that, that you are uh, <clears throat> co-image bearers of the God of the Bible, and that's important to him. The third thing, which I did not remember to say at the first service, so those people are all lost now. But the third thing is, is you could get lost in this story and think, um, you know, Rahab lies, and is the, is the lie right or wrong? Are we supposed to lie? Is the Bible prompting us to lie? And all that would be doing is getting lost, missing the message for the details. Um, and there's plenty of commentators you can look up on this. The best ones have said it's not really that uh, you're, you're saying that it's right. It's saying that it was necessary. It's not saying that she did wrong, but saying that she did what was essential. And again, we could play with that forever, but I don't want you to play the moral gymnastics and miss the point of the beauty of what Rahab does. And so um, if you want to follow up with me about that this week, of what, what it's teaching as far as... Um, when is it okay to mislead and not? There's good answers for that, but that's not really what this story is about. 
It's about Rahab's faith and Rahab's courage. All three things. Nailed it. Now you won't walk out of here at a deficit. Particular time in redemptive history, it's punctuated, it's over. We don't use violence. Two, Jesus has a very high view of women, and we should too. And three, uh, this story is not mainly about the moral gymnastics of her misleading these guys and saying that they've already left. It's mainly about her faith and her courage, so let's focus on that. Okay, now let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? And thank you, and I praise you uh, for your goodness to us. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work this morning. If your Holy Spirit doesn't move, then we're just here for another Sunday, which gets us excited for Christmas. We're just here out of routine in habit. We're just here because we don't want to feel bad about ourselves anymore, or maybe we're here because we want to feel good about ourselves. But if your spirit's at work among us, hearts will be transformed. So I pray, God, that you would send your spirit on such a way that hearts are transformed forever. You can do that. I can't. And so give us your spirit. I plead with you. You love to rescue sinners. You love to remind those of us who have been brought near that we too were once on the outside. Would you do your work this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. My son, Knox, who is 12 years old, uh, he had to read this powerful book recently for school. It's called I Am Malala, the story of the girl who stood up for education and was shot by the Taliban. Have any of you read this story? It's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty powerful of this young woman, Malala. I just want to tell you a little bit about her. She is a Pakistani girl. And to be a woman in Pakistan is not a good thing, particularly under the Taliban. And it means that she can't get an education, that she can't learn, that that's not her place in the world in Pakistan. And so she's a woman, and she's a Pakistani woman. And the story about her is that she is raised differently. Essentially, her father, who had a love for education and a love for educating these women who could grow up and be strong and contribute to society, and so he would, he would work secretly and then publicly, ultimately, to, to raise schools where girls could be educated. When Malala is 15, there's an assassination attempt on her life, and they shoot her in the head, and she doesn't die. But as she's recounting her story of being a, a young girl in, in Pakistan and how, how left out, how marginalized she would have been, she tells the story of her, her father's family tree. Now there's this tradition, at least in this por portion of the world, for her in Pakistan, where the families would actually have these family trees, so the trees on their property they would go out to and they would carve the initials of the sons and the fathers and the sons and the fathers for generation to generation. And so that as you would walk around this family's property, you would know the men and the sons who lived here, who made their mark here, who lived at this time. 
And on Malala's family tree, there hadn't been a woman's name carved in 300 years. Can you imagine what it's like to be a little girl and to grow up in a world where you're not supposed to be educated and history is going to forget you anyway because in the family tree, nobody even keeps track of your name. She says she remembers when her father took her hand and took her over to the family tree and he made her watch him as he carved her name into the tree. In doing so, he's saying, you have a place in this story. That the left out and the marginalized, you, Malala, you have a place in this story. This is your family too. The reason I tell you that is is, is what God is doing ultimately in the story of Rahab. God is taking this woman who's a Canaanite, and she's a woman, and she's a prostitute, Somebody who, whose story was set to go down in flames and God rescues the marginalized and brings her near and lets her save her own people. And not only that, makes her a part of the great story, the story of Jesus. And Matthew 1, as it's recounting the fathers and sons and fathers and sons, it gives us five women's names. And it's God's way of saying, women, this is your story too. Outsiders, this is your story too. You have a place in this family tree. And it's as if God in Christ marks your name on the tree. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Is that our God chooses the unlikely. Our God chooses the unlikely. Let's look together at the text. Glance with me in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, who you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above the earth. Excuse me, in the heavens above and on the earth. Now then, please. And she makes her plea, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But I want you to show you what an unlikely candidate this is to be a part of Jesus' line and how important that is for you and me to understand that. This is a Canaanite. This is somebody who they're supposed to be devoting to destruction. And yet God takes notice, takes care to bring her into the story of Jesus. And she's a woman. Didn't even have voting rights. And God takes care to bring her into the story, and she's a prostitute. And God takes care to bring her into the very genealogy of Jesus. And it's supposed to teach us something profound, is that our God chooses the unlikely. Our God chooses the unlikely. The Israelites don't even believe, and yet she believes. Remember that? The Israelites were the people of God who watched God vanquish Egypt's army, the most powerful army in all the world. 
The Israelites were the people who got to stand there and watch while Moses held out a staff and, and the waters parted and God's people could walk through on dry land and then, and then cause the water to crash down onto the Egyptians. The Israelites who were the ones who watched God feed his people over and over again from the heavens, bread from heaven. And when they finally get to the shores where they're going to go into the promised land and God says, I'm going to give you a land so that you can have a land and be a blessing to all the nations. They say, we're scared. We're not sure you can take them, God. Even though they watched God at work for all these years and they're punished by not being able to enter into the promised land in this new generation of people, they're told to believe that God can move, that God can do great things and this Canaanite prostitute, even though she didn't see with her own eyes, she hasn't heard the generations of stories. She sees God at work and she believes. And she's an unlikely candidate for God's grace. She's an unlikely candidate for God's grace. And this is what I want you to see. Us noticing her that she's an unlikely candidate for God's grace is really important because anyone and everyone is an unlikely candidate for God's grace. You see, Jesus came for mess-ups like you and me. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for the ones who can't keep it together. Jesus came for the people who worship other gods and turn good things into idols. Jesus came for those who misuse the name of God Jesus came for those who don't honor the Sabbath, who don't honor their parents, who don't honor their children, those who kill. Jesus came for murderers, for those who snap at their children, for those who throw ugly, snide remarks at their spouse. Jesus came for those who commit adultery. Jesus came for those who want to commit adultery. Jesus came for those who steal and cheat on their taxes and lie and envy. Jesus is for failures and for quitters, ones who give in to temptation, even though they've promised themselves all day, I'm not going to give in, and then they give in anyway. Jesus came for those who hope to do better and then mess it up. Jesus came for those who dabble with their sin at night. Jesus came for addicts who can't say no. Jesus is for alcoholics, for those who cheat in every way they can. Jesus is for those who give in to their desires. Jesus came for those who gossip. Jesus came for those who envy their neighbor's spouse and their vacations. Jesus comes for unlikely people. Whether it's a Canaanite woman prostitute who he honors by putting her in the very line of his family tree or whether it's you and me. You see, at this point, Rahab was once a prostitute. That's, that's what she's famous for in the Bible. She was once something. And you and I were once something too. We forget that and time moves on and maybe some of the big boulders roll out of the back history of our lives. But you and I were once something too. And I want you to see that in God's economy, it's only the disqualified that are qualified. It's only the outsiders who are insiders. It's only the nobodies who become somebodies. It's only the left out who will be brought in. 
Friends, what I want you to see in Rahab is that God doesn't resent your backstory. God doesn't resent your backstory. God doesn't resent your baggage. You see, if you slow down and you look, it's, it's that backstory, it's that baggage that actually leads you right to the throne room, right to the feet of Jesus. What causes us to not celebrate grace, celebrate Christ, is that we, we just keep hoping that we'll be a better person. We'll turn it around. We'll, we'll lay the pornography and the alcohol and the substances and our, and our wrong desires and our selfishness. We'll lay it aside and someday we'll be great. And then we live in the 24-hour devastation that we haven't changed that much Your fledgling hope to be a better person is robbing you of the freedom of living like Rahab, a nobody who became a somebody in God's economy. God doesn't resent your backstory. God doesn't resent your baggage. You know someday you'll you'll worship Him in gratitude for the worst parts of your sin. For the ugliest, most heinous, most shameful parts of your sin, you'll worship him because you'll realize that sin led you straight to the feet of Jesus in need of a rescuer. Martin Luther, who is a broken and conflicted man himself, he wrote this. May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. I want to be and remain in the church and the little flock of the faint-hearted, of the feeble and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're doing at Restoration Southside. That and nothing else. We're either trying to lovingly suggest to you that all of the things that you think disqualify you for walking with Jesus are actually the things that qualify you when you realize it. Or for those of you that are walking with Jesus to remind you that you were once something else too and you were brought in near because of His work and not yours. Jesus chooses unlikely, unworthy candidates for grace whether it's a Canaanite woman prostitute or whether it's me. The irony of sin, don't you see it? The irony of sin is that you start to hate yourself for the very things that bring you to an encounter with the living God, Jesus. And grace is so full, grace is so consummate, grace is so powerful that it takes the things that is supposed to make you wince and shame and uses them as the vehicles, the vehicles that drive you to the feet of Jesus. Yeah, you're a sinner. And I am too. And my sin led me straight to the feet of Jesus. And that's where we're going to say... God chooses unlikely candidates. And it shows us too how unselfish and marvelous Rahab is. Unselfish and marvelous. 
And I want you to see that. Because this is what we're supposed to be like. Not only is she unlikely because she's a Canaanite and a woman and a prostitute, but she shows unselfishness. Remember, the Israelites are supposed to believe, and she's, she's the one that believes. The Israelites have seen the real deal, and yet they struggle, and she's just heard of it, and she believes. And there's a presumption. There's a presumption in her that there might be room for her, that there might be grace for someone like her. Did you hear it? Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, the covenant name of God. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and brother, excuse me, father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This woman is... Her first thought is about other people. That she could get others saved. And she has this presumption in dealing with the God of heaven. Did you hear the the powerful way that she talks about him? She knows his story. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You hear it? Now then, please, she thinks if God is who I say he is, if God is who you're telling me he is, then there is hope, there is room for outsiders like me. And so her presumption is that of course there will be grace. Of course there will be grace. I wonder what it would be like if in the church that we had this presumption that of course there will be grace for the outsiders, for the messy, for the ugly, for the broken. Of course there will be grace. And her first thought is others. Who else can she get saved? Aaron and I were on a plane this week. You're actually in Mexico. I almost didn't come back. They're giving the speech. You know the speeches they give right before planes? They're giving you these life-changing, life-saving directions. And you're like, they're talking too loud. I need to turn my iPhone up. And one of the instructions, these life-saving instructions that they're giving us while we're listening to music is when you get your mask on, go put masks on others. Grab your little one and put your mask on the little one. Help those around you. Help those that might need assistance. Meaning if there's going to be a rescue, spread the rescue as far as you can. That's her instinct. If there's going to be a rescue, and I think that there is, You see that presumption of grace. I love it. If there's going to be a rescue, and I think that there is, I want to spread it as far as I can. That's how we know she's being presumptuous. She has a plan of each and every single person that she's going to ask my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all that belong to them. She's asking because she thinks that the God of the Bible has room for the marginalized. And she wants to spread the salvation as far as she can. What if we were like that? What if we as a church had this presumption of grace that whoever the nastiest one is out there, 
Whoever the farthest off, whoever the least qualified, whoever the most marginalized, we have a presumption that God is going to bring them near because that's who he's always after. And we want to spread the rescue as far as we can. What if her presumption that there will be grace and her presumption to spread the rescue, what if those were our presumptions as we move towards the city? So she's unlikely. She's a Canaanite and a, Canaanite and a woman and a prostitute. And she acts unselfishly. She shows faith and mission to get others saved. She's unselfish. Her first thought is for others. For those of you who may not know Christ, who may not have your trust in Christ, I am so glad that you're here. We're literally doing this for you. I'm so glad that you're here. But you may be intimidated. You think, I, I don't know all the whole Bible, all these pages, all these stories. I don't know how to read them. I, don't, I, I can't make sense of it. I don't have enough knowledge to have faith. One of the beautiful things we see about her is she has so little knowledge. She's got about a paragraph's worth of knowledge. And that knowledge gives her faith that she can trust. So if you're in this room and you don't have a lot of knowledge... All you need is a little bit. If there's a God of the Bible and that for some reason he loves sinners and can rescue me in Christ. And that's all I know. It's all I get. And you'll grow in time and you'll learn more of the stories and more of how it works. But it only takes a tiny droplet of faith to think just maybe there's room for a sinner like me. Just maybe. Just maybe God likes outsiders. Just maybe God justifies the wicked. Just a little droplet. And it will change everything. And she's used for the kingdom. And we'll start wrapping up here. She's used for the kingdom. In our economy, a story like hers with the prostitution people would casually and kindly forget that part of the narrative as the years pressed on. Oh yeah, of course, God saves prostitutes. Just let's not talk about it at Christmas. And that's why Matthew, in his genealogy for Jesus, the one who comes for sinners like you and me, says this, and I want you to hear this. This is Matthew getting the world ready for Jesus of Nazareth. And it says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, who we talked about last week. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's actually five women's names in this five women's name in this genealogy. And so our God's way of saying our God delights in women, dignifies them, has a place for them. Our God delights in those on the outside, those who are part of the nations and not a part of the Israelite people. You know, when you're telling the story of Jesus, it might just be good to leave out his great-great-grandmother prostitute. And Matthew puts it front and center. 
Matthew wants you to see that not only Rahab's faith saves her family, but Rahab's faith brings her into the great family where her great-great-great-grandson will rescue the world. That's the kind of people that Jesus rescues. I don't know if any of you have done the Ancestry.com. It's a multi-million dollar business where you can spit into a cup and then send off your DNA and someone's going to play in your spit and then they're going to send you a report and you're going to be like, this is amazing. Somebody I never met and never will meet was related to somebody else I'll never meet and it was in a town far, far away from here. You're like, how could these places actually be making money? But if you get your report and you flip through the pages and you start to see the stories and you start to see where you were related from and how it came together, you will bore your friends and family about it. You will say, can you believe this? This is part of my story. And Jesus does his Ancestry.com. He points at a Canaanite woman prostitute and says, she's part of my story. There's room in here for people like her. That's, that's the Jesus of Nazareth that I know. I don't want a Jesus who saves pretty good people. That's of no good to the most of us. I want a Jesus who looks at the worst one of us and says, come on, we have room for you in here. The story of the gospel is not that Jesus cleans up and saves pretty clean people. It's that God justifies the wicked. Like her. And like you and me. She leads us into this great family of Jesus. And now she has a new family. We'll close here. Brennan Manning, who wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel, Ruthless Trust and other things, another powerfully gifted and broken man battling alcoholism his whole life, including in and out of writing his books. He once wrote this in the Ragamuffin Gospel. I want you to hear it. He says, because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing, so he's going to describe the throne room, okay? I know it's hard to be read to. He's going to describe the throne room. I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I will see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I'll also see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. I'll also see the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. I will see the insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. I will see the sexually abused teen, molested by his father, now selling his body on the street, who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick, whispers the name of the unknown God 
he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. Manning says this. Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are there. We are there. The multitude who wanted to be so faithful, who at times got defeated and soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. Manning closes by saying this, My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace. What if grace is for the unlikely? The nobodies, the messed up, the left out. They can be brought in. She was brought in. And friends, there's room for you too. Let's pray. Father, in your kindness, with the person in this room who feels the most shamed, the most humiliated, the most left out, know that there's room in here for them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The most humiliated, the most left out know that there's room in here for them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.